Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And special thanks go out to fellow saloners Justin E., Ian W., and a great big thank you also to Anita L., all of whom made donations directly to the salon so as to cover some of the expenses for this month's podcast. So thank you one and all. I also would like to thank my 118 supporters on Patreon who have been as well essentially providing me with some ideas about how to keep these podcasts from the salon coming on for, well, maybe another decade or so. You see, since I'm now in my 77th year, I've decided to become proactive in figuring out how I want to spend what time I have left, particularly since I'm so healthy right now. (laughs) You know, there's an old joke in which a guy says that if he knew he was going to live so long, he would have taken better care of himself. Well, in my case, uh, thanks to a good diet and exercise and by avoiding all prescription medications, well, I'm in excellent health, uh, better in fact than I was 20 years ago. However, uh, (laughs) that raises another question, and that is how am I going to support myself for what I foresee is at least another decade or more? And additionally, uh, next year is going to be a bit more challenging because my wife is considering taking a position with a cannabis clinic in Mexico where she's going to have to live during the week. And that means we're going to need to support two households. Uh, Her small salary plus our two social security checks are uh, unfortunately not going to be enough. So it's come down to you, uh, my extended family here in the salon. Over the past 14 years, there have been downloads of these programs from tens of millions of unique IP addresses. So I know that there are a lot of our fellow saloners here in Cyberdelic Space, and what I'm hoping to find are the 1,000 fellow saloners who form the actual core of the salon. And so I'm in the process of consolidating these Psychedelic Salon podcasts with my current Patreon feed, and I'm calling it Psychedelic Salon 3.0. Now, beginning in November, all of my podcasts from the Salon 1.0 are going to first appear on my Patreon feed and will only be previewed here on the Salon's original feeds. Now, once the core of the salon has been identified, uh, or my immediate financial crisis is solved, well, then these podcasts will also begin to be played here in full on the original feeds. Now, actually, I wish I didn't have to do this, but it's the best shot I have for continuing my life with as few major interruptions as possible. So here's the deal. On my Patreon feed, there are only two levels still available. $1 a month and $5 a month. Of course, you can pledge more if you like. But no matter what level you choose, you'll have access not only to the first listen to the Salon 1.0 podcast, but also to the live version of the Psychedelic Salon, which takes place every Monday evening from 6.30 to 8 p.m. Pacific Time. And, well, a small group of us have been testing this since January, and most of the bugs have been worked out. So, to give you an idea of what these salon conversations are like, I'm playing a recording of last Monday's live salon in today's podcast. And, as you'll hear, the audio isn't perfect. And, again, uh, well, that's my fault. 
When I heard the little glitches in David's audio, I should have asked him to turn off his video feed because it seemed that his computer wasn't keeping up well enough. But uh, I didn't do that, and so I've now tried to edit out all of the longer glitches, and it shouldn't be too much of a distraction. But now that I've learned this lesson, uh, any future Monday night conversation I record should be improved. In case you've never thought about this before, you should know that in addition to all of the give and take between the psychedelic research community and government regulators, there are also serious investors who are spending millions of dollars so as to get ahead of the game once the psychedelic medicines are given broader permission to be used. In other words, just like what has already begun taking place in the legal marijuana markets, the same maneuvering is taking place already in the world of psychedelic medicines. However, uh, if you aren't aware of all that's going on, well, don't feel like you're alone. I've been in the same situation myself up until now. And like you, I have noticed an occasional story here and there about a couple of companies that are entering the field of legal psychedelics. But to be honest, those stories never interested me enough to read more than just a headline or so. However, after speaking with David Nichols a few days ago, my eyes have been opened. And now I realize how important it is for all of us to begin paying a little closer attention to how the market on psychedelic medicines is already being staked out by some big money people. And from what I've learned, all is not well at the intersection of big money and powerful psychedelic medicine. So now I'm going to play a recording of last Monday evening's live version of the Psychedelic Salon and uh, let you get a little feeling for what it could be like if you joined us each Monday. Now, now, now uh, Mark, do you want to tell us a little bit more about the, <laughs> the other Dave Nichols? Yeah, sorry, I could tell you a little bit about him uh, again. Um, um, so long story short, he runs the Nexian. He, uh, he does articles for them. I know he's been a speaker at at least seven or eight psychedelic conferences. Very passionate about the, um, you know, again, the fact that um, we're, you know, he considers this, we've talked about this, I guess, a couple of calls ago where we talked about, is this a religious right? Is this a um, medical right? Or is this a human right? And he's the one that brought that topic up, you know, and he's like, hey, look, this is a human right. We don't have any, you know, again. And, and so I, you know, a lot of the stuff that you've been hearing from me, it's because of some of the things that I've actually read from him in some of the past or whatever. And so that's, that's again, that's part of the reason why I thought he did this. Yeah, you know, and, and it's really a, a tricky question because, uh, you know, back in the 50s when it was uh, Albert Hoffman and uh, Aldous Huxley and a few others, you know, they, they were keeping it in the laboratory. And, and then along came Timothy Leary and uh, Ken Kesey, who busted it out to everybody. And then the government squashed everything. Then Terrence McKenna came along and, and along with the Grateful Dead and a few others and, and started bringing it all back again. And so, so we've kind of come full circle now. But, you know, originally when psychedelics were first uh, being reintroduced, uh, it was all in the laboratories. And uh, that, this latest podcast with uh, Dr. C. Uh, Sue, it, it was really fascinating to me to hear somebody being so forthright about uh, – uh, the fact that you know this is this could become a, uh, a class issue again too because of the, the cost involved if they if they do that. But, uh, you know, so I'm anxious to hear some other people's uh, opinions about what's going. What what can we do going forward if if there are if psychedelics get legalized for clinical use? Uh, how does the rest of the world, the people who 
either can't afford a psychiatrist, psychologist, or really don't need one and want to work in small groups on their own. How do we, uh, how do we integrate all this into our society? Uh, I don't have any idea myself. Anybody else? That, that was one of my questions from the, from your podcast today. It, the, the guy was saying how, how expensive this might be, you know, because you might need 60 hours of, of therapy and, and however much that could cost, 10 or 15 grand, something like that. But what I was wondering is, you know, when other drugs have became legal, they didn't have, they didn't uh, advertise them as assisted therapy drugs. They just had trials and tested them and made sure they weren't, you know, um, or they passed the test so they weren't bad for people. So I was wondering if, if after they've, they've made MDMA assisted therapy legal, if they'll continue to just try to make the drug legal in and of itself. So it, it may get, be able to be prescribed once or twice a month as a take-home therapy. And then if you want more involved assisted therapy, then you could go maybe the more expensive route with, with higher success rates. I don't know. It's just, um, well, well you know, the, the, as I understand the way the study has been going, the MAP study has been going, is, is uh, they probably wouldn't be in favor of uh, any uh, protocol that allowed uh, a prescription or, you know, taking it once or twice a month. Uh, their therapy seems to be like uh, probably no more than three administrations of the substance itself, but with the uh, assisted uh, therapy. And, uh, you know, if you listen to like Rachel Hope, people like this who have gone through that study, uh, it's been amazing what they've done and without the uh, dependence on a follow-through drug. So that, that's one, one track, but that's the MDMA track, which really isn't even a psychedelic track. Now you've got uh, a lot of people interested in, in magic mushrooms. And, of course, LSD therapy has been around for, for decades, and, and there's, you know, thousands of papers about it. But, but uh, how do we go about legalizing it? And then, like, like the podcast today uh, talked about, uh, you know, if you, if you do it in association with uh, therapy, uh, it can be quite expensive. And uh, then so you have the issue of, of uh, class issues and monetary issues. And, and uh, I, I'm more interested in instead of psychedelic clinics and how do we integrate uh, psychedelics into a culture uh, not necessarily where everybody's doing it, but where it's more accepted by the 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 uh, most of the people. So I, I need to quit talking. Hey, David, welcome. Glad to see you here. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. <clears throat> Listen, I I apologize. I'm the one that kind of messed everything up tonight. But you know, it's it's fascinating that you at least have a name that's confused with a guy who's who's a hero. My college classmate's last name was Kavanaugh. <laughs> so, so I've been wondering, I, you know, I've been wondering how he's been taking the last few weeks. But on the other hand, uh, we went to Notre Dame and he quit talking to me when I left the Catholic Church. So he's probably got his karma biting him back right now. So I'm not, I'm not crying for him, but I love him anyhow. So anyhow, David, welcome. Listen, I, I apologize for a little confusion, but uh, you, know, you know, Mark has, has uh, graciously asked uh, if, if you would come and, and you would accept it. So uh, what I'd like to do, you know, we, we uh, have a relatively small group here uh, each week, but 
Uh, on the other hand, I've been recording these things, and so you need to know it's being recorded. So far, I've not done nothing with it. I've done just saving it. My long-term thought is that probably uh, blackmail. It's it's all about blackmail, isn't it? Yeah. No, no. My my long-term thought is maybe uh, you know 15, 20 years from now, some some uh, PhD students will want to read all these tapes to find out. What were people really thinking back then when psychedelics were still illegal and they were talking about these things? So if nothing else, it's uh, an audio uh, you know, history that I'm trying to compile. But more than that, we're trying to, to get some answers to things and that you've been spending a lot of your time thinking about. So let me uh, kind of turn it over to you and uh, see if you want to lead our conversation. I'm sure you're going to have a lot of questions coming your way. Sure. Yeah. And I think that's probably uh, that probably to um, go about it. Um, I recognize that at this point, at least around some of the, the commercialism and, and compass stuff and things like that, I'm kind of so deep in it that it's hard to see the forest for the trees. Um, and so like things that seem sort of common or, or things that I at this point sort of take for granted, uh, I'm realizing or I have realized through numerous discussions that many people are simply unaware of. Uh, and so I get uh, as far as where the group is at and, and what sort of interests folks, um, I, I guess sort of the starter is, is how familiar or are people familiar with um, with compass is is that what people want to to start talking about is there a more general uh, uh area that that y'all have been discussing that would you know tie in as a sort of lead-in or something or well i i can say for myself until mark started pointing this out i really wasn't familiar with Compass, so that may be a good point to start unless everybody else is more than i am with it okay cool. let's start there so yeah, so I guess the short version would be that uh, Compass is a venture capital-backed for-profit entity that is looking to get into psilocybin treatments for depression um, as their initial endeavor. Uh, they're looking at treatment-resistant depression, but um, the main... Let's see. So the main backers at this point, or initially, it was... Uh, Peter Thiel, Christian Angermeyer, and I think Mike Novogratz was also involved. And these are folks who, you know, each sort of have their own histories, but are all tied to each other through the cryptocurrency arena. Um, Peter Thiel, people may know, gave a, a speech in 2009 to the Cato Institute where he decried women getting the vote, democracy. He pined for the 1920s as the last time in which there was real, real political optimism in this country because, you know, the robber barons were having their heyday. And so um, he's also the uh, main person behind Palantir, which um, is a CIA funded or was funded in part by the CIA's venture capital fund in QTEL. Um, and basically it's one of the more disturbing surveying apparatus that currently exists. It's been used extensively by ICE in the deportation of immigrants. It's been used against drug using communities in, um, I know there was an article on New Orleans. And in that case, I'm pretty sure the, uh, the city council wasn't even made aware that this deal was going on. And it's questionable who knew 
but within the policemen. And so there's some really interesting ties um, between the funders and the company itself. Now, the company itself has some sort of, uh, appears to have some interesting background in that they presented as a for-profit in 2016. However, for two years prior to that, they were operating as a nonprofit. Um, and while they were a nonprofit, they reached out to a number of psychedelic researchers, organizations such as MAPS, and um, essentially it, it appears that they struck up relationships in order to get information about protocols and approaches, um, what different effective routes might be for some of these therapies. And really, I would contend it, it appears that they kind of mined the community for as much information as possible. And then all of a sudden announced that publicly they that um, they uh, they couldn't make it work as a, as a nonprofit, so they had to go for profit. Um, <clears throat> the 990s for the nonprofit are available uh, online, and they that, that that's the document in which they publicly asserted that it just wasn't working out. Now, there have been several people who were kind of vocal uh, about the way that Compass was operating in the space. And the thing that caught my attention was an article that was published by Herb um, questioning whether or not psychedelics might go a similar route as cannabis once we started to see uh, medical move to recreational, move to, you know, so... Um, <clears throat> and in that article, there was discussion about concerns that various people in the community or communities or psychedelic spaces, whatever your preferred term may be, uh, had about their operations. And for me, the thing that that cropped up was uh, I, I come essentially from an underground background. I, I help moderate the DMT Nexus. Um, we've carried out a whole bunch of underground research efforts on everything from extraction methodologies to phytochemical analysis of plants used in ayahuasca uh, and a wide variety of other ethnobotanical preparations. And all of that research has required an open science approach. Um, we don't have any budgets. So our, our research has involved extensive amounts of piracy of peer-reviewed papers. The actual analytical database that we used for our, and so we, we sent off our samples to a sanctioned lab um, who then provided us with the raw chromatography files. So we downloaded an open source chromatography program. We pirated the 2006 version of the NIST database, and we ran all the analysis on our own computers, on our own times, on our own budgets. And basically, without having sanctioned researchers who were interested in and willing to sort of help us out, share their resources in very discreet ways, um, we wouldn't have been able to put that information out. And it, you know, it, it's fascinating to my mind, just from the pure uh, research angle, but because a lot of these plants were popping up on the global ethnobotanical marketplace, it actually had harm reduction value as well, where we found a few vendors who were selling random jungle vines that when we analyzed them, we couldn't find any compounds present, at least that weren't that were listed in the 2006 NIST database. So that was alarming to us because we were seeing some peaks but didn't know what they were. We couldn't tell people whether or not they were safe. For at least two of the plants, the only people who were having reports of actual psychedelic or psychoactive experiences appeared to be tied to those companies that were selling the vines. And so it seemed important to let people know, hey, these may not be safe to ingest. We don't know. However, these companies are selling them as, you know, not for human consumption. So they're covering themselves. And you all should probably consider what steps you might want to take to cover yourself, namely avoiding those vines. Um, 
So for me, right, seeing that all of these different researchers and organizations had signed on to this statement on open science that Bob Jesse had put together, and a statement that I felt really passionate about, I didn't sign it because I didn't see any need to sign it. Um, and, and personally, I don't consider myself to be someone in the space that uh, would add any visibility or, or merit to that statement. Um, <clears throat> I, I was kind of alarmed to see that Maps and Bill Richards um, were engaging with Compass to the degree that they were. As I understood it initially, um, Bill Richards was helping to train therapists that were going to work for Compass. Um, Rick Doblin was having meetings with George Goldsmith. And in the Herb article, it mentioned that he shared all of the FDA protocols with Compass. Now, I know that Rick and Maps share everything with everyone. But to my mind, open science isn't about unquestioningly sharing information with everyone. It's about maintaining the material conditions necessary to secure open science. And so if you know that sharing information with someone is going to result in them taking steps to interfere with that terrain in such a way that we can no longer carry out open science, then to me, that seems to be a problem. So, for example, if there is a, a venture capital-backed for-profit entity, we understand that they have to respond to shareholders and investors in very specific ways, namely maximizing profits. So that comes with a whole bunch of different strategies for interference, for ways to get competitive advantages over your competition, and even if there are people on that terrain, uh, such as the nonprofit company uh, USONA, that may not want to operate in those ways, um, by having that venture capital back for profit present, it, it roads the terrain. It means that you know, if USONA comes up with something that appears to be interesting, it is now in their best interest to keep that from Compass so that Compass doesn't utilize that <clears throat> to engage in further um, developments that, that might allow for additional interference. Now, I know I've been talking about interference for a moment, and I think uh, it probably makes sense to point to at least some of the concrete things that have happened. And the first thing that I became aware of that went from, okay, um, Compass is troubling because of the way these entities act within uh, capitalism, was finding out that Compass had signed an exclusivity agreement with a pharmaceutical company called Onyx. Now, Onyx was um, producing, or Onyx was contracted to produce GMP psilocybin for Compass. GMP means good manufacturing processes, and it's a, uh, it's a designation that's necessary now under the FDA um, guidelines for these studies. And... Um, it becomes necessary when you're manufacturing pharmaceuticals that are tracked towards being uh, for human consumption in, in a, um, sorry, I'm spacing on the best way to phrase this. Uh, essentially, when you, when you know you're taking things to market, um, FDA has stricter regulations. So in the case of university research, and, and the FDA has a whole lot of um, discretion about how they enforce their regulations, what regulations they apply in what contexts. 
So one might be able to contend that in the context of, say, Johns Hopkins University research, there was no real indication that these drugs were being um, taken through these studies in order to do like mass distribution or you know pharmaceutical style approaches or pharmaceutical like big pharma style approaches. However, um, in the case of Compass or in the case of the amount of promise that the FDA was seeing from these compounds, they felt it was important to make sure that they were more than covering their masses and essentially that they were doing everything to the highest standard possible. Because if these compounds are so effective, if they're seeing um, results that, unlike many pharmaceuticals, right, if psychedelics are in some cases capable of presenting significant improvements in one or two interventions, well, really novel approach to treating certain mental illnesses. And so I think one of the concerns may have been if something were to go off the rails, say a decade down the road, that should lawmakers do some sort of inquiry into um, what happened here? Did did the FDA make sure to take all of these things through rig- appropriately rigorous trials and, and do uh, their due diligence? FDA wants to be able to show that yes, we did our due diligence, and then some. so whereas many research studies have operated at least phase one and phase two studies uh, using research grade material up to this point, including material that was manufactured by like Dave Nichols, the other Dave Nichols, and um, oh, I'm forgetting who else was out there at the moment, sorry. Um, and for example, like the UCSF team that's currently doing phase two trials on um, AIDS patients, um, they're, they're grandfathered in, essentially. Their study started at the point where they had already gotten approval to use research-grade psilocybin rather than GMP. But the FDA um, made these changes to their, <clears throat> uh, to, to their enforcement around these issues. And so uh, Compass went off in search of uh, GMP psilocybin. Um, there was initially a company called Sterling that USONA was using. MAPS was using Sterling for uh, GMP MDMA, but due to numerous problems on Sterling's part, uh, there were extensive delays, perhaps price increases, in you know, cost increases, and it wasn't working out. So Onyx appro- or, uh, Compass approached MAPS for recommendations of pharmaceutical suppliers. MAPS sent them to Onyx. Um, at a point where um, Sona was fed up with Sterling, they approached uh, uh, Maps as well. Maps said, "Hey, you know, we we sent Compass to Onyx. Why don't you check out Onyx?" And when Usona uh, approached Onyx, Onyx informed them that they had an exclusivity agreement with uh, Compass. So there's a whole lot of hearsay and back and forth and and questions about what timelines. Uh, who reached out to who and in what manners and whether or not um, Sona at some point may have denied some request uh, by Compass to have psilocybin. Um, There's a lot of murkiness around some of that. I would contend none of that murkiness really matters because if uh, Sona had provided material to Compass, 
Compass would still be incentivized to act in ways that keep other people off the terrain. And I would contend that their exclusivity agreement with Onyx, which we've never seen in the, in the, the notion of trying to hamstring someone, particularly given that Compass wasn't ready to go ahead with their trials. So the entire, um, oh, gotcha. The entire endeavor um, seemed less about Compass doing anything in particular with that psilocybin in that moment and more about preventing other organizations who are already farther ahead from getting even uh, farther ahead and, and essentially a, an attempt for Compass to buy some time to try to catch up. Um, that, that's perhaps one of the more significant instances of interference at the moment. However, you know, looking at some of the potentially available <sighs> processes around turning these things into medicines, looking at Compass's desire to bring in wearable technology, um, looking at some of their, their partners, such as MindStrong and Seven Cups and these other uh, tech firms, like Calm, um, they're a, a, what do you call it? a meditation app. Right. They're looking to get into partnerships with, with wearable technologies and applications in ways that could potentially give them interesting patenting strategies. And to go back to structural components just for a moment, right, it appears that Compass wants to set themselves up as a vertically integrated company. That is, they want to have control over their supply chain from synthesis through therapy. Assuming that they can do that, that gives them potential options to block other folks from entry to essentially create a monopoly where they can use um, what's called value-based pricing to dictate their own price due to lack of competition. So uh, one of the questions that comes up around making psychedelics into medicines is getting insurance companies to pay for uh, the, the treatments. So if you think, if you imagine a situation where, say, current therapy for uh, treatment-resistant depression might cost an insurer $10,000 per year, if Compass is able to, or if any vertically integrated company is able to sell psilocybin therapy for $2,000 a year, yet has no competition, they could potentially sell that for $8,000 a year. They could approach the insurer and say, hey, we, we can make this available for $8,000. This is the insurance company will recognize that it's $2,000 cheaper than their current options. It benefits the insurer. It benefits Compass. But at the end of the day, we're all left out of it. As the people who pay insurance premiums, it seems pretty simple to contend that a therapy that costs $2,000 a year will have lower premiums than one that costs $8,000 a year. And so we end up bearing that socialized cost while Compass basically takes that additional profit and puts it in their own pockets. Um, so between that and, and we've seen uh, Compass currently has applied for a methods patent on uh, psilocybin uh, for their, it would be their GMP form of psilocybin. Um, there's hearsay that they've got other patents in the works um, and while some folks have expressed little to no concern over the enforceability of that patent, um, patent lawsuits take time and money. And so should other people 
find themselves on the receiving end of uh, patent lawsuits for, for junk patents, it still creates problems for anybody else who's trying to enter the space. Additionally, the reason that a company would do something like venture capital funding, right? the reason that venture capitalists or other investors will fund a company is because they're looking for a return on their investment. And so the structure implies that at some point, Compass will want to sell itself, whether it goes public, whether it attempts to sell itself to a big pharma or, or other life sciences company, it stands to reason at that point, all of the intellectual property, junk patents, um, exclusive agreements, anything else, right, uh, say internal studies. So say rather than releasing peer-reviewed papers, they could do in-house studies that they never make public because making those things public would give, uh, it would put them in the public domain and it would give information to their competition. Now, even if they were never gonna do anything with any of that information, why provide it to a partner? Uh, or sorry, why provide it to a, a competitor? It, it wouldn't be to their benefit. And if they sell to a big pharma company or a large life science company, all of that intellectual property would now be property of that larger company. And I think, I would assume most people in this chat have a pretty decent sense of how big pharma and life sciences company wield those intellectual property rights. So me, even if there weren't any of the specifics, I think just the structures are pretty alarming, but we're already seeing specifics that seem to indicate a pretty clear desire and willingness for uh, interference with non-Compass entities on the, on the part of Compass. And recently, Christian Angermeyer, who's one of the... Uh, main funders, I think there was just a Business Insider piece that was published this past week. I haven't had a chance to read it in depth, but he referred to, um, he referred to psychedelic medicines as a virgin industry and seemed to imply that there is tons of money to be made. As I understand it, I think they've sunk about $25 million into Compass and have like a 20% stake in the company. Um, and looking at some of the um, some of the statements that they're making now about psychedelic medicines as a whole, uh, it seems that in their minds, ideally, psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression, with the hopes of treating 100 to 200 million patients and ostensibly making quite a bit of money in the process would simply be the first step in a much wider uh, coverage of the psychedelic terrain, I believe, the detriment of the rest of us. So that's sort of uh, a general initial download. There's quite a few additional specifics that uh, I'm, I'm spending this week, hopefully trying to finish the majority of, of the first comprehensive uh, write-up that I'll be doing on this. There's so many sprawling components. I mean, this, this gets into issues of regulatory capture um, that is a revolving door between industry and regulators, the sort of networks that exist in pharmaceutical companies, but also financial industry, um, histories of business and partnerships. Um, there's questions about <clears throat> um, some of the individual players in these companies and who they know. For example, one of the Compass board members' name is Thomas Lombard. Thomas Lundgren used to be the head of the EMA. That's the European Medicines Agency. Now, 
he was the head of the EMA, he started a consultancy while he was still employed. And um, he ran that for about two months before voluntarily leaving the EMA. However, uh, a watchdog uh, agency basically said, uh, we think there's a problem here. It appears that there might be some sort of conflict of interest if Tom Longren is simultaneously running the and the EMA. Um, they did an initial investigation and, and then declared, oh, no, no, it's not really that big a deal. But then something like six months later, two independent watchdog agencies report that said, actually, this is pretty significant for all of these reasons. Unfortunately, there's no real enforcement mechanism. So all we can do is point out that this is a problematic uh, uh, behavior, but we have no, no way to deliver any sort of punishment or, um, you know, bring this before anyone in a way to get any sort of addressment of these concerns. Now, this is somebody who's on the Compass board and looking throughout uh, the way that Compass is structured, again, it seems like they're positioned within and around Europe in such a way that I have a hard time believing engaging with regulators in very intimate manners isn't um, part of their, their overall strategy. And I can understand why that might be a to Rick and MAPS, um, especially if they're looking to make MDMA a medicine, not just in the U.S., but elsewhere. Uh, and I have concerns about what that ultimately does to the broader terrain. And I also have concerns about a single individual or um, institution making decisions that affect all of us in really significant ways and ultimately acting as though they're not accountable and that they have that we have no reason to be concerned and should just trust people like Peter Thiel and George Goldsmith, uh, the, the one of the founders of Compass, and these other folks who, as far as I can tell, have never appeared to have our interests uh, at heart or at mind. David, I'll have to tell you, I am just totally fascinated by everything you're saying. <laughs> I, I, uh, I have to, this is a long kind of a prelude to a question, but, you know, it's, it's interesting. We really have a generational divide because I had kind of stopped even paying attention to some of the things you're talking about because, you know, I come from the generation where we weren't allowed to say the word psychedelic out loud at work. And, and now that, you know, we've been making progress in our studies and cannabis is getting legalized. And, and so I've, I've really kind of relaxed and not paid attention. And, and what you're telling me, first of all, you know, as, as a lawyer, I would love to podcast everything you said, but I want to make sure you don't get yourself in trouble, you know. But on the other hand, as you were talking, I'm thinking, my God, you know, when I was involved with the phone company, uh, and I moved out here and I retired and quit the phone company. I was shocked that everybody out here didn't know the names of the top 10 executives in the world's leading phone companies. Cause that was the, that was the Malu I was in. And you are, are in the Malu that's going to affect the whole psychedelic community. And yet there, it's really hard to find information about this. I was about to ask you where to go to find it. And instead, as you kept talking, I'm thinking, would, would you be interested in doing like a, a regular monthly or every six week uh, column on the salon and just bringing us up to date with the, the state of the uh, world as far as this is concerned? Uh, absolutely. So one of the things that, uh, that, like I said, I mean, I've, 
I've been trying to keep up with the amount of information that I've been taking in. And, and I really appreciate the comment that you made, you know, considering your, your legal background. Um, I have a few lawyers in the family and have been trying to do my best to uh, keep it kosher. Um, but <laughs> literally everything that I'm saying, I have primary documents for. I can back it up with statements that have been made either via emails or um, documents like public filings or things that have been stated at psychedelic conferences. Um, and while there are things that I would contend, uh, you know, I have quite a bit of speculation as well. And while the speculation gets into some, some really sort of terrifying dystopian potentials, um, and I'm, I'm really hoping to get into some of that as purely speculative pieces based on this information, um, initially, I'm going to be sticking just to the facts. And for a lot of this, I don't feel that I need to, to share the speculation in the sense that like, I have timelines that I don't necessarily, I can't say that they indicate certain things happened without any, any or without a doubt. But I would very much like to share these timelines in ways that um, lay out the timelines that I see, lay out the documents that support those timelines, point to the public uh, statements around that, and just ask, does this make sense? What seems valid to the reader? Uh, so like I said, so, so the first piece I'm working on is just going to be sort of a general sketch of all of these major data points, and then it's become really apparent that there's going to need to be follow-ups because it snakes into so many different arenas. So, for example, um, you know, I mean, just looking at the Thomas Lundgren stuff, you know, I, to me, that was one of the, the more disturbing things that Tom, Thomas Lundgren is, is listed on their board, of, or on their, on their board page. Um, you can then do a search on him and find the articles that were published by the EMA Watchdogs. Um, or, or looking at, um, you know, the, the one that, that's, a, there's going to be several other articles coming out as well by legitimate professional journalists that I think will detail better some of the things around, say, the exclusivity agreement, right? So like Rick Doblin and other folks have all acknowledged that the exclusivity agreement exists, but I haven't personally seen it. I do know that there are other reporters who have, um, and so... Painting that, that picture, you know, to me, um, yeah, I, there, there's, there's been so many moving components. I mean, just getting the Business Insider uh, story that came out this week, the last documents that I had seen, it had showed uh, George and Katja each owning 40% of the company. And then the remaining 20% was split up three ways between uh, Peter Thiel's um, company, between Christian and the other persons and you know funny enough they each had 6.66% of, <laughs> of the company at this point but obviously the, the business insider article is now reporting that um, that a life sciences Christian Angermeyer's VC fund has 20% so clearly those things are shifting and I, I figured as much considering that the papers I had seen were something like 14 or 16 months old um, so I think that we're going to continue to see quite a few developments, and, and I would like to share that as much as possible, because to me, this is all incredibly alarming, and if we're on top of it, if we don't even have information about what's going on, I don't know how we could possibly begin to strategize about, is there any way to engage with it, and what might it look like? 
You know, I, I completely agree with you, David. And, and, you know, this is a conversation we need to be having now and not, not five years from now, probably too late. And, and so I definitely want to give you a platform because what, what you've done, I'm sure all of us have, have read bits and pieces of what you've said. We've, we've read stories about Compass and this and that and Peter Thiel and all, but none of, well, I shouldn't say none of us. I, for one, have never been able to connect these dots. And, and uh, you know, you and I and, and the rest of us, we may not agree on everything all the time, but I think that you've really got the, uh, the insights that we can use to get this conversation going and, and make it more widespread. So I'd be more than happy to use the uh, salon as a platform to help you uh, get your, your ideas out there. Thanks. That would be amazing. And, you know, personally, I want to say, I can't tell you how many people have said uh, in the last couple months um, something similar along the lines of, of we don't agree on, on everything. And to me, I think that's great. I think, I think the fact that we, we don't agree on everything makes it so much more interesting. It gives us so much more to, to discuss. Necessary to, right? Question to sort of pick apart. I mean, I, don't, I certainly don't think I'm right about everything. I know, uh, uh, especially like, you know, my own political and intellectual perspectives are the result of my lived experiences and my own personal education and interests. And I have tons of blind spots. I think we all do. And so I find sitting down with folks who are interested in having like the really difficult questions and, and having conversations around questions for which there are no clear answers. I mean, to me, that's the stuff that, that feels stimulating and nourishing and super important. Like, I was kind of frustrated that at the, the recent CIIS conference that Chakruna put on, that I had to take out uh, a few of my systemic questions and instead engage with some of the more, what I viewed as mundane compass stuff. Because, you know, I think it's fascinating that legitimizing psychedelics in the, in the current paradigm requires working with the Department of Defense and the Department of Health and Human Services, right? And people know why DOD is problematic, but DHHS is literally the, or the, the department responsible for immigrant de- facilitating the immigrant detentions. Um, you've, got, you've got forced medication of children, child abuse, you know, all of these issues. And we're told this is the necessary department to work with because that's where FDA is housed. But also if you at the Mithoffer studies, um, they gave DHHS uh, direct access to the medical records of folks involved. I'm not sure why. I had asked researchers and a couple other teams if they had similar access. They said no. I figured, and this is pure speculation, I figured it may have had something to do with the uh, military nature of that study, you know, dealing with veterans. Not 100%, not sure by any, any stretch. But to me, like, okay, we, we can all acknowledge, I think, that the FDA in this system is absolutely necessary. You need that approval if you want to go through that sanction channel. And yet, right, this is all tied to all of this other really problematic stuff. Is there a way to do anything about it? Do we feel any way about it? Is there a line that, that has been crossed that shouldn't be crossed? That like, you know, having that discussion, I don't know that any clear, coherent answers come out of it, but it seems important to talk about. Yeah, you know, for a long time, I've always maintained that the questions are more important than the answers because until you start asking questions, you don't even know what your problems are because you haven't formulated <laughs> them. And and what what you can help us maybe do is stimulate questions in everybody's own mind. You know, we we need to all kind of come to grips with this ourselves. And like like we both said, we won't all agree on all the details, but. Uh, 
uh, if we can come to com some kind of a consensus as far as the directions that are needed and overall uh, overarching, uh, you know, structure, we may not have any uh, ultimate say in how it all works out. But sure. you know, if we bite our tongues and don't say anything, then shame on us. I couldn't agree more. So anybody else, somebody else want to add to this conversation right now? Yeah, well, I'd say, uh, David, thank you. Uh, well done. Uh, I'm not that informed on uh, the issue, uh, but I uh, appreciate uh, you bringing up so many uh, questions and points about uh, psychedelics going corporate is what I, what I take from it. And, uh, uh, you know, there's go up pretty quickly uh, with, with that prospect. But I just want to, Lorenzo, before David came on, you know, sort of as a preamble, you were talking about this uh, general subject. And uh, it seems to me that, uh, you know, once it is legalized, assuming that this is gonna be happening, legalized therapeutic use, um, it's gonna be running in parallel with the already established, um, what should we call it, uh, underground. And that, um, it, which is going strong, um, it's not gonna reach maybe the people who, uh, as you described, David, are, um, you know, ha have some real therapeutic needs uh, the, the, where they need to go into where insurance would cover it and so forth. But, um, you know, I, I don't know if you've read the, the book, The Secret Chief by Myron Stolaroff, which he profiles uh, Leo Zeff, who was a therapist, I believe, in Southern California, who, uh, you know, uh, did, did therapy in parallel, you know, though it was already illegal to use MDMA and so forth. He, he went into the 80s and 90s and until his death, um, working with people. So, um, there probably were others doing that, but that, that was who Myron knew, and Myron was very impressed with this guy. I never met him myself, but uh, anyway, I'll just throw that in. I, I don't have the answers either, but this thing in parallel uh, between the, already the underground and people, you know, people do get therapeutic value from uh, using in, in that fashion, although it's not as uh, the protocols aren't there like you're talking about, and, and MAPS is formulated. Thank you. Oh, yeah, totally. And I think the underground is, is hugely important. I think that, um, you know, I mean, my, my first psychedelic experience was therapeutic in a way that literally, I mean, the, the release of existential angst around death and dying that I've literally, I had literally carried from my earliest memories. You know, my first memories are, are being three years old, um, visiting my grandmother in the hospital as she's dying from breast cancer. Uh, and like I used to struggle to, to fall asleep at night as a kid trying to to understand what would it mean to not exist right. you know forward 15 years and like you know having done an extensive amount of research thanks to Arrowhead, thanks to Wikipedia thanks to you know sort of the digital a a information age of drugs um, you know I uh, have having been largely drug avoidant except for cannabis from 15 like I um, you know, I, I suddenly had an experience where that entire fear and, and anxiety, it just evaporated. Um, and for me, I mean, there was also a, an explicitly political component of that too, where, you know, my own understandings of industrial civilization and capitalism and other things kind of stitched themselves together in a really fascinating way. But, but the ongoing relief I got from that, I mean, it, it truly was tremendously therapeutic to a point where, you know, my parents were on the phone with me like, 
look, we know you're at school. We know you're, you're, you're on your own and getting to sort of uh, uh, do things your own way. It seems like you're doing it really, really good. Like, what's up? And that was 2006. It was the same year the Hopkins study came out. And I kind of uh, agonized about it for a while. But eventually I sent it to them. I was like, you want to know what's up? This is what's up. <laughs> and, you know, I think that it's really important to make sure that there is a vibrant underground, even in the context of, um, you know, whether it's decriminalization and, or, or even in the context of push for medicalization in the current context, I think it's important to not de-emphasize the underground. I think there's a lot that the underground brings to the table. And at the same time, I think it's important to not sort of um, pin any sort of protective aspect on the underground. So like I've heard some people say, oh, well, you know, even if GMP psilocybin goes, gets medicalized and they reschedule and they make it available, like it'll be price checked or it may be price checked in part by the fact that you could still just walk down the street and find mushrooms growing in a pasture somewhere or, you know, find some dealer to buy them from. And I would contend that that's just not the case. If we look at, I mean, the FDA recently approved the first CBD medication. They're saying the price on that is going to be $32,500 a year, right? For a plant that you can literally grow in a ditch, you know, like to me, that's indication that there is no guarantee that black markets will will price level. I mean, similarly, there are noted um, noted in these spaces, such as Ben Sessa, who I think rightly so acknowledges that many of his patients aren't interested in in being criminals. They're not willing to go to the black market. So, if those folks aren't willing to go to the black market, the fact that there's a much cheaper alternative available if you're willing to be a criminal doesn't really matter, at least for those people. So right. I think we have to understand the underground and, and sanctioned um, research, also sanctioned and approved medical approaches, not as antagonistic to each other, but actually as complementary in ways where ideally I would like to see those as two vibrant trails blazed across a much broader psychedelic terrain. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's uh, the only way to really get that uh, there from here is to have these conversations and thousands of them around the world. And, and, you know, so that, that people can kind of raise up their voices when things get too oppressive, but, uh, of course, you know, <laughs> as everybody knows here in the States, things are going to probably get more repressive for a while. than. Uh... Yeah, it's kind of gotten a little, uh, a little real over the last few years. I mean, not that it wasn't problematic before, but yeah, I, I you know, and um, looking at some of the issues that are currently popping up in some spaces around questions of misogyny and, and sexual assault and how are, uh, you know, what are the responsibilities of institutional heads to engage with really difficult questions? And, you know, I mean, there's, when we're talking about issues of, of psychedelics and consent, um, the waters can get really, really muddy. I mean, I would imagine that many people have had experiences. I know I've had psychedelic experiences where I'm, I have no control over my body. Uh, where if so, where I'm like, I think about many of my DMT breakthroughs where I'm literally not in my body. I can think of, of ayahuasca experiences where I have such high levels of ataxia 
that I can't control my muscles in, in any significant way. And I'm lying in bed. Um, potential, the, the degree to which people are vulnerable in some of these experiences, like physically, uh, is, is huge. And then beyond that, when we consider integration, when we consider coming back, when we see the effects that, that some of these experiences and substances have on folks, you know, I think when we consider um, work that, that some folks do in integration circles as, um, as trained, licensed physicians and, and therapists and, and folks that are doing that work of integration, particularly those who are facing outward um, I know there are resources like the MAPS integration list. To my mind, just as I think many people would contend about Brett Kavanaugh, uh, anybody who's on a psychedelic integration list or running an integration circle should really be above questioning, right? Like if, if there's an issue that appears, I think it's important that uh, should somebody raise allegations or questions about the behavior of somebody who's in a public facing integration position, important to me that that person not be given the platform. I'm not saying that they're, they're permanently banned just because somebody asks a question, raises an issue. But I think at that point, there's no reason why they can't be delisted until there's an actual discussion to figure out what's going on here. Why has this happened? Um, and and really like, I think that to my mind, it seems like erring on the side that, that, Right? Nobody is losing out by not being able to do integration work. There are plenty of people who are capable, who are qualified, who are willing to do that work. And um, I think that it would behoove us as a community or as communities to figure out how can we make sure that people in the more vulnerable positions are being heard, are being engaged in ways that make them feel safer. I think that there's been a lot of focus on how do we reintegrate. I mean, looking at some of the stuff that's happened around the Me Too movement, thinking about like Louis C.K. and some of the other uh, folks who have acknowledged to some extent their, their misdeeds or actions and have then attempted to come back uh, into spaces um, saying that, you know, with people saying, hey, like um, they're, they're not a threat anymore, they're not they don't present the same level of risk. Um, while I can hear that, I'm more concerned about what those effects are, what their presence in those spaces is for the people who have histories of trauma, histories of abuse. For me, I think that, especially when we look at some of the power dynamics in psychedelic spaces, when we see predominantly white, wealthier men in positions of power uh, engaging um, you know, looking to sort of keep some of their friends in the fold, um, it raises questions about who we respect and who we value in these spaces. And for me, I think the biggest question is, why is it so important to bring some of these folks back into the space when their presence makes all of these other people incredibly uncomfortable? And this is a question that I raised recently around the inclusion of, of Daniel Pinkbeck at the funding dinner uh, around Horizons. I, I, having had a number of people reach out to me to say, hey, you know, why is this person being included? This seems really problematic. This makes me feel this way. Um, do you understand, given his, his acknowledgement of some of his uh, behaviors and considering how, I mean, 
in his acknowledgement, he said at one point, and I'm going to clip the quote, but it's on his Facebook statement, where basically the quote was, uh, behaviors I haven't engaged in include, um, you know, things I haven't done uh, include not having, you know, non-consensual sex. But problematic behaviors I have engaged in include using substances as tools of seduction. Now, that presents a pretty problematic view of consent. Um, I don't think it holds water personally. So to then have major players in these spaces say, oh, I think Daniel has acknowledged his behavior or, or oh, like, I don't think he's a risk to anyone. I don't think it makes sense for, for powerful men in positions of privilege to be the, the deciders of those things. I think that when we're looking at people who have used their positions of power to engage in problematic behaviors, to put it mildly, um, we need to figure out ways of, of addressing or raising questions around these really difficult, messy discussions that make space for the survivors, that make space for the victims, that try to amplify some of the voices that are getting pushed to the margins yeah and then uh i mean it just seems to me like it's not like lorenzo it's, it's not like the um the psychedelic community is is different than like the society at large right so it's like if there's some like sketchiness in it it's like a microcosm of the society as a whole so i agree uh, we'll just try to not be too surprised by it but like try to deal with it in a good way yeah, you know, we have divorces and, and fights and disagreements and, and vendettas and everything else, you know, just on the same scale, probably, uh, you know, percentage wise as any other community. And, and you know, the thing is, we just have to find the ways to, uh, 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 you know, pour oil on those waters without uh, coming to blows. Totally. And I think, you know, it's exactly that, right? Like we are a microcosm in all these ways. And then... Um, you know, one of the things that kind of uh, catches me off guard from time to time is that it's not just that we're a microcosm, like we're a microcosm that has groups of people that have, uh, right, this notion about like the cause or a cause, right, like depending on, on what that is, right, that, oh, we can't make noise about that because this this might interfere with medicalization or this might get in the way of legalization. And so, you know, do we, does it if broader society sees this as like a sex crazed weirdos because oh my god there's a sex scandal in within these psychedelic you know communities and like you know that to me like I guess the same way sort of similar to how I feel about a lot of the compass stuff and the potential for extreme commodification and corporatization is like what's the point of getting these things legalized or more widely available if in the process we sort of turn ourselves into the same cesspit as, you know, as we see these things as potentially being antidotes to it, right? Like, I don't think that psychedelics necessarily uh, generate outcomes that are antithetical to dominant culture. I'd like to believe that they can facilitate those experiences. I think that it depends a lot on, you know, set and setting and intention and context. But, um, you know, to me, one of my larger concerns around this project of mainstreaming is that in the process of mainstreaming, there's going to be an attempt to sort of um, domesticate psychedelics, to, to tame them in a way where they're no longer uh, challenging some of those systems of power that I, I think 
certain people um, look to them as, as catalysts for. You know, it's really interesting to look at LSD and microdosing and the fact that, you know, if, if we look at what it took to make LSD palatable um, to dominant culture, right? It was like at the point where it was no longer presenting, or not no longer, but when it could be repackaged um, as a microdose that you, you give to your coders, you give to your engineers, and suddenly they're much more creative and capable of uh, coming up with, with new solutions and generating more profit for your company, you know, or at least this is like the, the marketing that goes with it, right? That's palatable in a way that, ooh, macro doses for um, boundary dissolving experiences that challenge the socioeconomic order didn't really seem to be. And so seeing the, seeing the reverence that, that microdosing seems to be taking on within some of the tech communities uh, and seeing the folks that are buying into that and really pushing it, um, I think it really presents an interesting chance to, to look at some of those dynamics and look at the cultural containers uh, around these things and, and question, you know, how do we want to present these things and, and to what extent uh, does the, the um, discussion and the discourse and, and cultural container around them actually matter? Uh, and, and does that, you know, matter potentially as much, if not more, than the substances themselves? You know, David, as, as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, that for a long time I've been uh, – really kind of more focused uh, community-wise inward, you know, to theme camps and festivals and stuff like that. And and you bring a, a, a neat dimension to this whole thing as a potential window into our world or an interface between these worlds, because you're actually thinking about ways to present what what we feel and believe in and, and like to do to uh, sort of through the default world that, that you know, doesn't have a great opinion of us because of the propaganda so far. At least that's the way it kind of seems to me. I mean, to me, it seems really important. I mean, for, for me, like I said, I don't think psychedelics inherently, you know, have a specific outcome. But when I look at my own experiences, particularly my first one, um, since then, I mean, psychedelics have always struck me as having this radical political potential. And, you know, I think, if we look through the literature, right, we can see that there are certain themes that exist over time. I mean, I'm on the younger side of things, so I'm sure some people have lived through these histories. I know some people have lived through these histories, but when I look through the literature, right, I see themes of, of love, of interconnection, of sense of ecological, the importance of ecological integrity. And one of the things that I, I realized is even if we take what, what some folks in the default world or um, outside of these communities might view as sort of most hippy dippy messaging from these, right? Something like all there is is love or all you need is love or love is the most important thing in the universe. Um, I would contend that when you have that unitive, all encompassing loving experience and then come back to a world in which there are like trillion dollar industries predicated on telling you that you're unlovable and that, you know, that's why you need to buy the right deodorant and the right toothpaste and, you know, oh, well, you know, your friends won't, won't think you're good unless you drive a, a, a nice enough car or have the new iPod or you know, whatever, iPhone, um, right? I would contend at that point, having that all-encompassing loving experience and then figuring out how to apply that into the default world is an inherently radical act. And that, like, your I think it was Banksy who said, right, like, every time you walk into 
public space and you're confronted with advertising for from everywhere with advertising you had no say and you had no 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 choice in in confronting it's somebody throwing a rock at your head and so like suddenly right you've been given this insight into a way of being into a way of, of experiencing the world that is so fundamentally at odds with what most of us encounter in day-to-day life that I think it raises really significant questions about how we live, the choices we make, what sort of intentions we want for not only ourselves, but our communities and the world around us, that putting those experiences into practice, I don't see how, if you, if you find those experiences meaningful and worth putting into practice, how they could do anything other than challenge some of those dominant systems. Oh, I um, agree. I agree. Anybody else yeah, it, would like to join in here? Go ahead, yeah, Rock. Um, um, that's so. I, I mentioned in the introduction. I'm. I, I started a tiny psychedelic society in a tiny country called Slovenia of two million, and 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 exactly what you're saying, David, is obviously psychedelics do empower us to see through much of the bullshit that's around us. So my, I mean. I have I have the privilege of living in a tiny country where potentially we can just do stuff and nothing much will happen, you know. And so my primary goal really is just enabling people to have a first truly psychedelic experience. And then, I mean, if, if it touches them anywhere close to, you know, the intensity that I felt, they'll find a way through either the dark web or a friend or you know, some mushrooms in the forest, um, you know, and, and, and then hopefully join us in, in thinking about these larger issues of commercialization and, and patents and that sort of stuff. Totally. And that's one of the reasons why I think it's really important to try to tie these things um, into the larger systemic questions, right? Because to me, it's almost like, um, you know, I, I was talking with Emmanuel Spirios a couple of weeks ago and he, he was pushing real hard on, on medicalization and how, you know, if we just get enough people into psychedelic therapy, it'll change the world. And one of my, one of my questions was, you know, how is that any different than dosing the water? Like to me, it's like dose the water 2.0. If we medicalize to mainstreaming, then, then suddenly things just change. And I think that, that, Absolutely, things can change, but I think we have to also be engaged in discussions, right, like uh, about why things are the way they are. Like, uh, I found it really interesting, you know, some, a friend of mine was reading to me from Pollan's recent book and reminded me of the fact that, you know, there was a point where, where Rick sent May to a bunch of the world's spiritual leaders in the hopes of ending sectarian crises. Well, it's like, don't have war because people dislike each other, like, economic incentives to war, um, you know, we don't, like capitalism is set up to incentivize certain things. If, if you were to show the CEO of Apple that, oh my God, look, there's all this really terrible stuff that making your products and can't you see, can't you have a little sympathy? You know, you may be able to convince him and, and he goes back to the board and says, oh my God, you guys, you won't believe the terrible things that are going on. And the board will laugh and get rid of him they'll find somebody else who's capable of stepping into that position. So then maybe you take the whole board and you show them and 
let's say they all, you know, they all recognize it and they're like, oh my God, this is so terrible. And they start talking about, well, it's a public company, right? So the shareholders say, ah, we can find a new board. We can, we can, you know, um, vote ways that will maximize our profits. Um, Like the way that these systems cut through, it's not just about us having experiences that like help us, you know, like it's so important to see through the bullshit. And then like when we see through the bullshit, we have to ask, okay, how is the bullshit structured? How is it, you know, shit flows downhill, right? So if we still have this hill and we're living at the bottom of it, we're constantly going to find ourselves covered in all of this. So how do we start, you know, engaging in ways that get into these systemic components that don't just view psychedelics as, as personally emancipatory or liberatory, but start to get into those larger questions of, of social liberation. And I think, you know, it, it's fascinating. I can't imagine what it's like to be in a country of, of two million and like, you know, be able to operate, I, I, like I can only imagine, right? Like the police state and mass incarceration in this country, the way that it operates. Um, I mean, you've got ties between the prison industrial complex and the military industrial complex where, you know, these two incredibly profitable industries are, are piggybacked on each other and relying on so-called population, you know, these incredibly lucrative and, and simultaneously incredibly destructive industries in ways where these are, are huge sticks, you know, in the sense of the proverbial cat and the stick to get people to act in certain ways within this social con- context. And so, you know, back to that no- notion of really difficult, potentially unanswerable questions, like how do we begin grappling with, with deconstructing some of that? I mean, I've heard a number of, of military veterans who have had, really successful um, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy sessions talk about, you know, finding ways to dismantle the military-industrial complex. So, you know, as, as psychedelically engaged folks, like, are there things we can do to help provide them the resources? Are there ways we can support them? I mean, similarly, you know, why don't we see more um, psychedelic prison abolition groups? You know, like, these are, these are projects that, to my mind, you know, tie in as, as much as their, their sort of uh, components of, of dominant culture and the default world. Like these are things that in my mind should be part and parcel of, of our engagement as uh, psychedelically interested folks. <laughs> well, it's, it's always nice to find the others, hey? It is, it is. And, and you know, tonight, uh, this is the very first night we've had somebody from Slovenia and Rock. I appreciate you being here. And Travis, yeah. Travis, who has come uh, quite a few times from Wellington. And like I said, uh, Laura's here tonight. Good to see you again, Laura and Mally and Sean and, and uh, the joint specialist, Ed. So, uh, oh, Kevin, Kevin's still driving. Yeah, but anyhow, you guys, uh, hey, thanks. I, I think this is the best one of these we've had so far. So, uh, Mark and David, thank you for uh, organizing this. And uh, the rest of you, thanks for being here. And uh, I look forward to next Monday night. It'll be fun. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. So, uh, here we are faced with yet another uncomfortable situation. However, uh, as they say in Texas, well, sometimes you just have to take the bull by the tail and face the situation. (laughs) And, uh, well, it seems to me that this is one of those times, because if we put off talking about this until after the classifications of most psychedelic medicines are lowered, so as to become more easily available for research and treatment, 
Well, by then I suspect that it'll be too late for us common people to wrest control of these powerful substances away from the big money people. You know, back in the 60s, men like Timothy Leary and Ken Kesey were able to break the hold that science held over these substances and to help more of us gain access to these important medicines. Well, today it's up to you, me, and some of our friends to keep big business interests from locking them down as well. Just now you heard Dave Nichols talk about the importance of maintaining a robust underground of people outside of the big business enterprises who... Well, people who do what has been done in the underground for ages, namely uh, keep the flame alive. And guess what? You are a part of that underground. And I'm not talking about an illegal underground of people selling illegal substances. No, our underground is even more important because what we're about is keeping information about psychedelic medicines free of corporate and government influence. Our memories are long, and we clearly recall the horrors of MK Ultra, and we aren't about to let them get away with that again. At the very least, uh, well, I think this is something that we should continue to discuss among ourselves. But don't worry if this conversation isn't what you're looking for right now, because in the next couple of weeks, I'll also be playing more talks from this year's Palenque Norte lectures at Burning Man, and then in November, which will basically be my fun drive month, it's going to be some new talks from Terence McKenna. So there's a lot more fun in store for us in the months ahead. And tomorrow evening on our regular Psychedelic Salon Live Monday night session, I think, uh, well, maybe we should pick up this conversation a little bit more about big businesses' attempt to corner the marijuana and psychedelic medicine markets. And I hope that you'll join us. You know, it only costs a dollar a month to participate in these live versions of the salon. And I hope to see you there. And uh, by the way, details are delivered to my patrons via email each week in case you're interested. So for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.